You're listening to the SSBX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 4 of the Crisis in the Church series. This week, we're welcoming Father Stephen Reuter, who's the prior of St. Denis in Calgary. He'll be our guide for the next few episodes as we dive into the errors of liberalism, which is something that has infected everyone living today, and even those living in the early 20th century, including Archbishop Lefebvre. This week, we will learn how that happened, and how the Archbishop, in his seminary years, learned to fight this heresy. We'll also explore what liberalism is and how we can prevent ourselves from falling into it. If you'd like to go back and revisit some of our earlier episodes, find out more about the series on the crisis in the church, or find out how to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now, let's turn to our conversation with Father Stephen Reuter. We're back with another episode of the SSPX podcast on the Crisis in the Church series, and very happy to welcome for the first time for this series and to the podcast itself, Father Stephen Reuter. Hello, Father. How are you? Well, Andrew, how are you? Uh, doing very well. And uh, we were saying just before we started recording, this is maybe the, one of the first times that you and I have met, and certainly uh, the first time you've been on one of our series. So uh, for those who are listeners, viewers who don't know who Father Reuter is, could you give a brief introduction? So I was ordained in Winona, Minnesota in 2012. Okay. Uh, then I spent a year in the Dominican Republic, and then seven years at the seminary teaching ethics, dogmatic theology, and Acts of the Magisterium. Okay. And then this year I was transferred to Calgary, Canada, where I am now. Fantastic. And and side note, it, difference between the seminary and going back to, you're at, you're at a priory, I assume, back yes. in more of a parish life. Yes. The difference between being a seminary professor and priory, uh, is there, I mean, obviously it's different, um, but do you tend to like one life more than another, or maybe you want to be diplomatic and not say, answer I've that I've only father. been here a month, so the jury is out. I've been here one month. Okay. Fair enough. Well, I hope, I hope the Calgarians are treating you well. So far. And, uh, very good. Well, we are going to be talking with you about uh, liberalism, Father, and we're going to be breaking our conversation up into probably two different episodes. Uh, and then later on, we'll be talking with Father Loop about Americanism, and that will kind of broadly encapsulate this larger uh, concept of liberalism. Uh, so what is, I guess we start with liberalism. Is this what we hear all the time on TV and the news that you're a liberal, you're not a liberal? So it's certainly a word that we use quite frequently and often hear. And generally, it's associated with for example, the left of a political party or the radical left or in the church, we'll hear it in regards to the progressivist. So it is a term which we, we often hear. And those who are on the progressive side of history are certainly liberals. Yet I think what we fail to understand is that even many conservatives today are what we could call small C conservatives and are in fact still what we could call capital L liberals because they still embrace the liberal philosophy and liberal doctrine, which has been condemned so forcefully by the church. Mm-hmm. So we, we so were talking broader. with Father, Father Wiseman the last couple episodes about the origins of, of liberalism and, and so forth and, and kind of where it all began and, and the subjectivist philosophy, you know, nominalism, naturalism, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, so liberalism as a whole, um, you're basically saying that we are all liberals just by virtue of kind of being alive today. It, it's probably very difficult to not be 
liberal. Yes, we're certainly very influenced. We're social by nature. Aristotle gave that definition, man is a social animal. So being that we're social by nature, we're, we're very influenced by the society in which we live. And the post-revolutionary world is a revolutionary, therefore a very liberal world. And uh, in fact, even the archbishop, he was born in a very Catholic and holy family. He was born in France in 1905. So there's still remnants of Christendom. And Christendom is when the doctrine permeates the social order. There were still remnants of Christendom And yet when the archbishop went to the French seminary in Rome, he discovered in his own words that he was a liberal. Hmm. So we see that even over 100 years ago, a very holy and pious young man found out that he was a liberal. And the reason was because he accepted the principle that is good for the church to be separated from the state, Hmm. which is a principle which most of us just take for granted as being the norm and as being a very good thing. So in that sense, yes, we're all very permeated by liberalism. And so he he found that he was liberal in the sense and and the Roman seminary at the time was still very anti-liberal or or not mm-hmm. liberal. Uh, I a side note here on the on the ecclesiastical side of things or on the moral side of things, what would be the opposite of big L liberal? Would it be conservative or would it be Um so yeah, a conservative in the modern sense is somebody who wants to basically preserve what exists but they're not willing to go back to the true Catholic principles, which is to restore all things in Christ. So many small C conservatives, they say the revolution has gone as far as we want it to go, or maybe too far, but we're not willing to go back to the principle, which Christ is the king, and society, the church, the home, the individual, must submit themselves to Christ's kingship, which is the only true principle of order in society. So most conservatives don't accept that principle, and therefore they're still capital L liberals. So at this at this seminary, he was able to preserve that that conservative uh, sense that was still very present in the church at, at that time. Is that correct? Yes, thanks to his seminary rector, Father Lafloc. Father Lafloc was what we can say a, a true Catholic, and by way of consequence, an anti-liberal. And Father Lafloc explained the teaching of the church. And notably, the, the, the last two centuries, the 19th and uh, the beginning of the 20th century, the doctrine of the church on the kingship of Christ, and the archbishop really soaked in this doctrine. And in fact, Father Lafloc told the seminarians that they had to make a choice, either accept the Catholic doctrine and fight for the Catholic doctrine or leave the seminary. Hmm. Because he says the church can't afford to have more or to have any liberal priest. And so the archbishop had to make that choice very early on in the seminary to accept what the church teaches on Christ the King, to repudiate the liberal doctrines of separation of church and state, and therefore to dedicate his life to the service of the church. And so at that time, how was how was liberalism uh, showing itself in, in culture? It was it was probably not, you know, we're talking about France and, and Italy, we're talking about Europe in the early 1900s. Uh, there wouldn't be the liberalism or the progressivism as we see it today uh, in the states here in 2020. There was not abortion and, and those kinds of things. But uh, what was what was what was the liberalism that was uh, so hated by this seminary professor and by the young by the young father Lefebvre at that time? Well, even the Pope Pius the Tenth makes the comment 
early on his papacy in 1904, where just the apostasy of nations, where nations no longer accept the teaching authority of Christ and no longer construct a legal system which reflects the natural law and the divine law, no longer promote the law of the church in their country, because we are what the laws make us to be in a certain sense. And uh, when the laws become atheistic or indifferent, man becomes atheistic and indifferent. Hmm. So what happened in the 19th and 18th century is a preparation for the complete decadence we see today. Very interesting. And this was, again, this was this banishment of, of Christ the King. The, this separate, like you said at the very beginning, this separation of church and state, this is really a hallmark of capital L liberalism theory that yes. started back in the French Revolution and, and continued all the way. Yes, and in fact, at the French seminary, the archbishop was, was taught by his professors there that there was really a, a three-fold plan or three steps in the plan of liberalism. And the archbishop, he says that it's a, a Freemasonic agenda. He says the liberal agenda is a Freemasonic agenda. And there was a, a famous Freemason in Belgium who actually said that our philosophy is the philosophy of liberalism. Mm. And the Archbishop learned there's three points to this, this agenda. And the first is to separate church and state, to secularize the state. Because we're creatures of habit, we're, we're subject to a state. And when the laws do not reflect the law of God, when the laws do not reflect that Christ is God and King, we easily get swept away by our passions or by the errors of the time. And so the first step in the liberal agenda is to separate the church from the state, to banish Christ the King from the constitutions. Yes, the second was to suppress the mass by whatever means possible. And so, of course, we see this in the communist revolutions or the different persecutions. The mass is always persecuted or suppressed. We see it, of course, the Vatican do by changing the mass, making it into the gathering of the people of God rather than the sacrifice of Calvary. And so it really suppress the mass because the mass is, is really the source of Christ's kingship. We see that we know from the liturgy that Christ reigns from the wood of the cross. So all of the kingship of Christ hinges on the fact that Christ purchased society by dying on the cross. And the Mass expresses that and continues the grace necessary to ensure that the laws of the nations and the people are able to conform themselves to God's, God's plan for order. So, so, the so second this is step, which central. This is this. It's, it's not just separating the church from the state, but it is, all right, now let's go after religion, you know, to use a more colloquial term. Let's go after religion itself. Let's go after the liturgy itself. Exactly. Separate people from the source of all grace, which is the Mass. Oh. And then finally, we have the, the third goal. The third goal is really to, to separate the souls from the source of grace, which is very closely linked to the second, because the Mass is the source of grace. So really to make souls secular, to alienate them from the sacraments, to alienate them from the laws of God. So whenever we see any of these three things happening, we know there's some type of of liberal agenda behind it, which is seeking to destroy Christendom or the remnants thereof. So separate sure. the church from the state, suppress the mass, bring people away from the sacraments, which are the channels of grace. The first point we see happening, we, we've seen it in the United States. We see it in the Constitution of the United States, the separation of church and state. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Americanism more with Father Loop, so I don't want to jump ahead and talk, start talking about the United States too much, but this is what most of us uh, understand 
Second is, you know, separation of the mass. But the third one, you know, I was just thinking, could we, could we say that uh, you often hear Catholics or nominal Catholics, uh, Catholic politicians say, well, this is what I believe, but I don't want to impose mm-hmm. my views on someone else. For instance, yeah. a, a Catholic politician who is okay with abortion, for instance, would that be that third uh, goal of, of the liberals, of, of those free Masonic ideals, trying to separate the person from the beliefs? I mean, it's this classic of liberalism where there's no real consequences to your ideas. And so for many politicians today is privately, they're pro-life or privately they believe in the Eucharist or whatnot, but has no influence on the rest of their life. That's really just mm-hmm. a classical trademark of a liberal. They don't, they don't see the link between ideas and practice. Very interesting. So this is, this is not just a consequence of human action and time. This is... This is a, you're saying this is a plan. This was, I don't want to say conspiracy, but it really was. It was a conspiracy. It was a plan to try to uh, wrest uh, people away from their faith. Yes. You know, whenever you see an effect, there must be a proportionate cause. That's how the ancients came to know anything. They would, you know, if you see a tree fall over, there must be sufficient cause to make that tree fall over. And so you need to investigate what caused, what, what cause was sufficient to produce this effect. So when we see this effect, which is um, societies, the church, and all the people of the world today so influenced by liberalism, we do have to wonder, you know, what's the sufficient cause? And in fact, the archbishop himself, he asked himself that question, and he said that it's not possible, so it's impossible to understand the present crisis in the church. So, of course, we're in this crisis, which is clear. It's not possible to understand the crisis in the church or to know the true characters of the people who are involved, or to know the attitude we must have in front of them without investigating the cause of the crisis. And the crisis was caused by, he says, liberalism. He says liberalism was a plan of Freemasonry in order to separate souls from God. And so this crisis you know, continues to develop. We're often deploring the effects of the crisis, the different moral, doctrinal, liturgical abuses. But unless we go back a couple centuries and see what the church actually teaches, we're not unable to contribute to the restoration of the church because there'll be no restoration until Jesus Christ is the king of the church, of society, of our families, of our souls, of every element of our life, every faculty of our body is under the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's denied by the liberals. And so we are finally, and I say finally, getting to the meat of, of the matter, understanding the crisis and, and, its, and its causes. Uh, the first episode we did with Father McFarland, you know, we, we went through, is there a crisis? And we went mm-hmm. through all the statistics and all of the details. And, and at the end, I sat back and, and I was just, well, thanks, Father, for that rosy picture of society. And, um, and I wanted to, to explore with, I, I kept wanting to, well, Okay, but then what can we do to fix it? Or what was the cause? Mm-hmm. Or what was, so here we are today, finally able to say, all right, what was what is then the root of the of this crisis? Uh, and so, what did the archbishop see? What what did his investigations show, Father? So he wrote in his his book they have uncrowned him, which is certainly an excellent reference and a very important book today. He wrote that we have to go back to history in order to discover the primary cause of the evils today. So look at history. What's the primary cause? 
And then he tells us the primary cause is that liberalism, which was, which was condemned by the popes for two centuries. So the Archbishop identified liberalism as the cause of the current crisis in the church, the cause of the evils which we see today. And so liberalism is, is the problem. It is kind of the, I, I, th- I think I was talking with Father Franks earlier, uh, and he referred to it as the grandfather of all heresies. It is kind of the, the hydra of, of a lot substrate, of different heresies. Yes. In many ways, at least proximately. Sure. To get to liberalism, you need the, you know, the philosophy of nominalism and Martin Luther, which we'll touch on. But really, it's the substrate of, of the errors which come. And the two points which the archbishop makes, which are so important, is liberalism is the problem. But we also have two centuries of magisterium to know what the church teaches and to know the evil of liberalism. So we don't need to you know, recreate you know, something out of nowhere. We have the church telling us for two centuries, what is liberalism? What's the foundation of liberalism? What's the consequence of liberalism? And through that, we can come back to a certain restoration in the church. Very interesting. So liberalism, this is, like, like we just said, it's, it's, the, it's the large, most identifiable part of, of the crisis, but there's something even a little deeper than that. And that's one of the things you wanted to talk about today, Father, right? Yes. The link, and it's an important link to make, between naturalism and liberalism. And in fact, again, we always look to the popes, the magisterium for light. And from Pope Pius VI all the way through Benedict XV, they speak not only of liberalism, but they do speak of the errors between which the link between liberalism and Protestantism, and that Protestantism is founded in naturalism. So we can say naturalism is more fundamental even than liberalism. Mm-hmm. And it's really the grandfather of liberalism in many ways, naturalism. Okay. So this is distinct from nominalism, which is what we've been talking with Father yes. Wiseman about. Uh, and so what is, what is naturalism then, Father? So naturalism is not so much a special system, a special philosophical system. It's more of an attitude which permeates many systems and, unfortunately, an attitude which permeates all of us. We're all very Mm -hmm. influenced by naturalism, and we'll certainly can speak about how it influences us later on as well. But in broad strokes, if you're going to talk about three different mindsets which are which are naturalistic. It's one is the materialist, the pure materialist, who deny any transcendental being, any first cause distinct from creation. And for them, the, the, entire, the, the entire existing order is coextensive with the natural world. So the natural world stands on its own There is no supernatural, transcendental being which holds this world in existence. And therefore, they're not going to believe in a supernatural end, which is heaven, grace as a means to get to heaven. But this material world itself is the cause of itself. So that's, you know, really fundamental materialism, which is necessarily naturalism. There is no supernatural, transcendent order. So that would, so we we would say that someone who is... um who sees the world according to naturalism. Uh, one example might be the atheistic evolutionist, someone who is, you know, this is, this is the way things are. This is how things go. We have no idea how it all started, but we know it did start and that's it. 
the only laws are the laws contained in the material being, which come from themselves. They're the source of, of their own being. Which, if that's the case, then there is no law higher than man. Right. Man is freed from any transcendental order, any dependence, therefore any accountability. Right. And it's very convenient when you deny a transcendental being, well, you're no longer responsible to him. You can do what you want. Yeah, absolutely. So a, I I use the example of an atheistic uh, evolutionist, but there are people who adhere to naturalism who do believe in uh, some sort of God, higher power, whatever they want to call it. Correct. Um, how do they square those? We even see that, for example, in our, our founding fathers and much of the Enlightenment, where a first principle, a distinct creator, is admitted, but they don't believe that this first being, this creator, in any way intervenes in the world. So you, in, a, in a sense, you can say the first group of materialists don't believe in a creator, the second group will admit there's a creator, but they don't believe this creator is providence. Mm. They don't believe that he actually governs the world. He has an interest in directing all things towards their final end, which, of course, is God himself. So likewise, you have this group of naturalists, which just don't think God intervenes at all in the world. That notion of a clockmaker, where he just sets the world in motion, steps back, and what happens, happens. Hmm. So they... they they have that that notion of a god, but very very distinct. Uh, and then there's that third group of naturalists, uh, and and where do they fall in? So here we'll have people who admit, and this is the danger for all of us. In fact, hmm. we do admit a supernatural order. We we know we're called to it, but we have this idea that somehow through our natural power, through our natural strength, we're going to reach it on our own. And this is a real problem, even in often in traditional circles, people ask themselves, well, what did I do right to deserve you know, faith or tradition or whatnot? And the simple answer is nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is grace. If we have any gift, it's because God loved it into us, not because we merited it. Now, of course, we have to cooperate with grace, but the first grace, the prevenient grace, always comes from God. And so mm-hmm. that really... You know, really touches all of us. It's this notion that by our nature, we're going to do it on our own. And without God, we can do nothing. Right. So we need to live in this absolute dependence on God's grace, which is always available, but, with, but we must cooperate with this grace. So really, there's three tiers of, of naturalism. One, you know, basically atheist all the way down to a trap that we could ourselves we easily fall easily into. Easily fall into, and we probably do many times in a day, in fact. Sure. Just subconscious, sure, sure. you know, we lean on nature because it's more tangible than grace. Sure. Um, is naturalism something that popped up at any certain point in time? Can we trace its origins back to someone or something uh, like we can with, with some of these other uh, philosophical ideas? Or, or probably not. You said it wasn't really a philosophical idea, but more of an attitude. Attitude. Yes. In fact, um, we could even look back at Lucifer. Hmm. Um, he was given all these natural qualities the most perfect uh-huh. nature. He has sanctifying grace, but Lucifer was given a test. Accept the supernatural order given by God. Accept that your happiness comes from submission to God's order and therefore the beatific vision and be eternally happy or lean on your own natural qualities. Choose yourself as your last end, which of course became you know, a third of the angels fell in hell because of it. So naturalism, we can trace back to Lucifer. And in fact, Father Sarda in his Book liberalism is is a sin. 
he tells us that even liberalism is nothing more than Lucifer's plan applied to our century. This liberation mm-hmm. from God, this separation from God, which is what naturalism ultimately is, a rejection of the supernatural order, a rejection of our essential dependence as, as creatures upon God. So Lucifer, in a very real sense, is the first naturalist. And, and the consequences, of course, unfold throughout history. Adam and Eve rejected you know, the order established by our Lord. Because they wanted, they wanted something that was... Right. Okay. Not due to them. That starts to make sense. And then, and then there were thinkers throughout throughout history as well. Um, yeah. An important, I think, an important person to consider because of the influence his thought has on us. I think, in a certain sense, and has on the Second Vatican Council is Pelagius, a oh. um, British monk of the fourth century, whom was condemned by the local council of Carthage and. And, re, and by St. Augustine. But he had this idea that he had a, a misunderstanding of original sin and this misunderstanding of the distinction between grace and nature. And, and he thought that the first step towards sanctification, towards heaven, was thanks to our nature, an act of the will by which we put ourselves on the path to salvation rather than recognizing, no, that first grace comes from God. So that's a, a real a real clear instance of somebody not understanding the distinction between grace and nature and man's dependent upon grace in order to get to heaven, in order to get to God. It's very interesting. And then uh, we, we have naturalism again throughout, throughout history. I'm thinking here, the, my major in, in college was art history. So obviously I know about the Renaissance. Uh, and that was, that was a big, <laughs> that was probably a watershed moment for naturalism. Yes. Yes, really, the Renaissance is extraordinary because it's this rebirth of the classics, the Greco-Roman culture. There's extraordinary art, music. Mm-hmm. It brings out the, the, the perfection of the human form. There's really a, an extraordinary movement on, on that level. But unfortunately, there's a bit of a humanism. It's a focus on, we can say, the beauty of human nature without the need to be redeemed. So mm-hmm. all this focus on the beauty of man is is preventing people from understanding, yes, we have a good nature, it's integral, but we're in need of redemption. Our grace must, our, our nature rather, I'm sorry, must be healed by grace in order to, to, to live as God wants us to live. And so there was a bit of a lack of harm, a lack of, of proportion in the, in how much the, the beauty of human nature was promoted. And the Archbishop spoke about this in regards to Michelangelo and whatnot. He said this art has a place in art galleries or outside the churches, but bringing all this Greco-Roman art into the churches did set a precedence that people no longer understood the need for grace to be beautiful as God wants us to be beautiful, to be restored as God wants us to be restored. So there was a movement which was which dangerous in the Renaissance of taking the focus of our need for redemption and glory in man's natural beauty. Well, I didn't know you were an iconoclast, Father. <laughs> I'm no, kidding. I'm not. <laughs> I'm very happy to see the art, but yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, and then Luther took naturalism and really ran with it, didn't he? Yes, in a very different way, and it's, in fact, it's it's paradoxical because we have the Renaissance, mm. which gloried in the beauty of man, how beautiful the proportions of of man, thanks to God's creation, all the harmony. But Luther, on the other hand, is a naturalist in a different and more insidious way. 
For him, rather than looking at the beauty of nature, for him, nature is intrinsically corrupted and can't be healed. So again, it's this naturalism insofar as we know as Catholics that grace builds on nature, grace heals nature. For Luther, grace was something purely extrinsic. Nature was so evil it could not be healed. Therefore, man can can do nothing but wallow in his natural misery, which really separates man from God. If the Renaissance separated man from God in the sense that he didn't see his need for redemption, Luther's the opposite. We're so miserable that we can't be redeemed anyway. So Luther really pushed forward this naturalism. And Luther, we can say, is a pivotal point and in many sense, the father of liberalism. Because Luther, on many levels, started the, the liberalism as we know it today. It's interesting, Father, that, you know, you talk about how naturalism is, is something very easy for us to fall into. Uh, and, and you talk about these two, you know, Luther on one hand and the Renaissance on the other. It's not two people, but two groups, you know, two aspects. Uh, again, totally opposite, but they both fell into naturalism through very different paths. And that kind of shows how, I guess, predisposed we are as humans to, to fall into this naturalism trap. Exactly, because, because grace is a free gift from God, which we can't see, we can't taste, we can't touch. We know it by faith. And so when we're not constantly in contact with grace through our prayer, meditation, spiritual life, it's easy to live as if grace doesn't exist or, or to create an, a false notion of what grace is and what the supernatural order is. So how, how is it that naturalism played a part in, in this personal salvation doctrine that Luther had? Uh, what was it about naturalism that, that made him so, because I, I can understand, you know, I'm so bad, I, 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 am, uh, I, I have to be separated from God, but how did that, uh, how does that follow? The idea that our nature is so corrupt that we can't be elevated, we cannot in any way please God. So if you live in this state where no matter what you do, it's a sin, there's no reason even to try to live up to the natural the, the natural law, for example. Uh, and we just can't be good. Our nature is corrupt. And therefore, it led to this idea that, well, if my nature cannot be healed by grace, if grace does not penetrate the essence of the soul and make me pleasing to God, I must liberate myself from the church. All right? So the purpose of the church is to be our mother and to teach the truth and to channel grace to our souls, to elevate us. So once our soul can no longer be elevated by grace, there's this complete liberation from the teaching of the church. We're no longer going to accept what the church teaches on Scripture. For example, in Scripture, of course, the church teaches that Scripture is inspired and that the church tells us what Scripture means because she is the spouse of Christ. For Luther, the notion of inspiration is, I'm inspired while I read Scripture, it can tell me whatever it wants to tell me, or I can tell myself whatever I want to tell myself to justify mm. my behavior. And therefore, I need to be liberated from that authority of the church, which tells me what to think and what to do. So we see already here the fact for Luther, redemption was purely personal and purely extrinsic. So if it's purely personal, there's no reason to have a social order which reflects Christ the King, because our 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 salvation is just this act of blind confidence. So there's no social order needed to have an act of blind confidence that I convince myself I'm saved. Right? For the Protestants, you know, they're convinced they're saved, but they don't know what they believe. Whereas the church says, no, this is what you must believe. If you, if you believe it and live it, you'll be saved. So Luther liberated himself from that whole idea of the certitude of faith 
with the lack of certitude of salvation, therefore a need for the sacraments to keep us in the grace of God. And so when you said that Luther is the kind of the, the father of, of liberalism in a sense, uh, it's because he really uh, gave everyone else who followed permission to be totally individual. Yep. Completely liberated, liberated from the church, you know, liberated from any authority outside of themselves. Every person becomes their own authority. If you have the right, for example, to decide what scripture says, then why don't you have the right to decide what the natural law says or what any law or any mandate tells you? Everybody really becomes this, this rugged individual who has no accountability to anybody outside themselves. Hmm. It's very interesting. So there's, there's, no, there's no authority in matters of faith and morality. Um, you can do whatever you want. So this is now rolling. Um, yep. How did the popes respond? Well, the popes, of course, the, the question of, of Luther was, was Luther was condemned and we have the Council of Trent to try to, to bring order and stability back to the church, which of course they did, you know, condemning his notion of, of, of original sin, of, of, of grace and all these things. So the Council of Trent did, of course, a, a marvelous job in, in bringing, you know, the church back to to stability. Um, but of course, by that time, you know, half of Christendom was severed from the Catholic Church. It was a, mm. a tragic moment in history, and it kind of set the stage for the next big movement towards the crisis, which is really the Enlightenment. Now, since, you know, Luther is separated from the authority of the Church, all these free thinkers are now going to be separated from, from the existential order, separated from their dependence on reality and create their own philosophies, all liberated in a certain sense and free to promulgate their air down the centuries and leading to the crisis we have today. And it's, is it at this time, Father, where during the Enlightenment, where we have some of these tenets of, of liberalism starting to kind of get into the, get into the church, get into the hierarchy? I would, say, I would say they get into the institutions as such. Okay. So Luther's, you know, liberalism was, was very religious in nature. It was based, of course, on nominalism, as, as you said, you spoke about with Father Wiseman. But it was really in a certain restricted sphere. But now with the Enlightenment, the philosophy of the Enlightenment takes these nominalist notions. For example, for Luther, redemption was purely external. Grace was external. We couldn't even know, really grasp the essence of what it was. And now you have an enlightenment where all truth becomes subjective and we, we can't even access the truth. So everybody makes their own truth according mm -hmm. to, to their, own, their own desires. And of course, Immanuel Kant and, and Descartes are all big figures in this movement of, of man unable to get out of himself. For example, for the Thomist, for the sane philosopher, you know, truth is the conformity of my mind to reality. Right. So I have the truth when my mind is conformed to reality, when I understand reality as it is. Well, modern philosophy comes and says we can't even get out of ourselves. And therefore, we see this notion of truth is the conformity of my mind to the needs of human life. And this is, of course, Maurice Blondel, a French philosopher, who's very influential. And in fact, this idea that truth is a conformity of my mind to life, well, as life evolves, as people need divorce or whatever other you know thing is needed today, well, they can do it because I'm just conforming my mind to the needs of human life. So all this was set with Kant and Descartes and their inability 
to submit themselves to an order outside themselves. The truth exists. My intellect is, a, is made noble by knowing the truth. My will is made good by pursuing the truth. That was broken with the Renaissance. Very interesting. And so it's, it, like you said, it, it's, it's an easy, easy, in air quotes, uh, step. Once you have severed truth from reality, or once you have severed your, uh, your idea of what is real from yourself, from, from reality, in terms of religion, and in terms of morality, the next logical step is to then apply it to daily life, civil life, uh, governments, etc. And that's what we've seen. Yeah, that was what the French Revolution was, is thanks to the Enlightenment and everybody's, you know, severing themselves or liberating themselves from the church and liberating themselves from reality, which is in a certain sense more dangerous because to liberate your mind from reality is, is so destructive. It's to deny the very purpose of the mind, to to drink in, to to conceive ideas, to conform your your knowledge, your mind to what is true, to what is rather. So once that's broken, then... You know, there's basically no limit on where you're going to go. And that's what happened is the French Revolution was a perfect product of Luther and the Enlightenment. And it was the state wanting to separate herself from any influence of the church. And it became violent because we know at the time the church had great influence in society. And so the reason the French Revolution had to be so bloody was because they had to remove really all the obstacles to this liberal agenda this, this, this fraternity, this, this equality by which they wanted to bring all people to this certain natural equality without any relation to God. That's very interesting. So we've been talking about liberalism as almost abstract, as a philosophical idea. Um, then let's look at liberals themselves. So what would be some, some tenets of being a liberal? So we can see Father um, Roussel in his book, Liberalism and Catholicism. It was actually some conferences he gave at Rome and was then translated into English. It was published in 1926. He gave a definition, which is, which is very, very clear. He says, a liberal is a fanatic for independence. He extols it to the point of going to the absurdity in every domain. So this, he extols it to the point, to the absurdity. So this absolute independence from anything which constrains him. So for the liberal, the only evil is something which constrains us, something mm. which prevents us from doing what we want to do. So, you know, freedom is given to us not to do what we want by God, but so we have the ability to do what we ought. For the liberal, right, right. liberty is given to us to do whatever we want, and our dignity comes from doing whatever we want. For the Catholic, no, God gave us a free will, and liberty is a gift from God, so we're able to do what we ought, so we can go to heaven. It's uh, this. There's a direct tie here to life in 2020. If you're on, you know, social media or email or just in conversation with friends who may be liberal, the uh, the biggest sin is to make any condemnation of anything. Uh, and and you say, well, I, I can't accept homosexuality, uh, homosexual unions. I can't accept abortion. No, no, no. You have to accept that. And then you turn it around and say, well, will you accept me? No, because you don't accept these. And so yeah, liberalism accepts the... everything. For them, there's no dogma except the dogma of liberalism. So you, you can never contradict the liberal, but their dogma is that anything goes. It's a losing argument for, yeah. for a Catholic. Yeah. At the French Revolution, liberty for all but the enemies of liberty. So as long <sighs> as you play their game and you accept right. every error and immorality, it's fine. 
But as soon as you say, no, there's an objective order, there is an eternal law and natural law, church law, we must submit ourselves to it, then you're, you're evil and to be cast out. You're a plague. Right. So liberalism at its root, it means liberty, right? That's, that's, the, that's the root of the word liberal in a sense. Uh, what are some of these liberties that, that a liberal will insist on or, or, or require? So we can break it down to a few elements based off kind of man's nature. So our highest faculty is our intellect. So one thing that liberal insists on is that the intellect is not subject to reality. Mm. We, we don't have to accept things to be true. You know, we, you know, we, we're not only, we don't only have our own, own opinions, but we can make up our own facts, so to speak. We just, nothing constrains us. And so this is really the, the most dangerous form of liberalism because the mind is the highest faculty. By the mind, we know the truth. And this we call rationalism. You know, the human intellect is the highest intellect in the mind of the liberals. And the intellect is not passive in regards to reality, but the intellect is active in regards to reality, which is made possible thanks to Immanuel Kant. And so the, the mind is freed from the order of being. That's the most fundamental error there. And, and rationalism, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm kind of speaking off the cuff here, rationalism really hit its, uh, hit its peak or, or really started to influence a majority of, of people uh, during the Industrial Revolution, during the Scientific Revolution, uh, when we started to be able to see things with microscopes and telescopes and understand how nature works. Yeah, uh, the empirical so, movement is very much yeah, a denying a higher order, higher being. We likewise see it throughout the Enlightenment, all of the Enlightenment philosophers considering that their, their intellect is the, is the ultimate judge of what's true and what's not true. Um, we see in the French Revolution, God is reason, you know, the notion that you know, God is reason, that the reason is the highest, the human reason is the highest faculty and nothing measures it, but it measures all things. And of course, this is very dangerous because once we're separated from the truth, we're very vulnerable. The truth sets us free. Right. So, and that's what the true Catholic notion of liberty is. Of course, we all have free will. Sure. We all have the ability to do whatever we want physically, right? We can jump off a cliff if we want. So we all have that radical ability. But for the Catholic, liberty is a lack of determination in front of a particular good for the sake of our ultimate good. So for the Catholic, we are created by God with a purpose. That purpose is to know, to love, to serve God, so as to be happy with him in heaven. And so the Catholic notion of true liberty is all these, all these, in, all these intermediary goods, which are in front of me, do I want to be a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, right? All these different things in front of me, there's no determination which makes me choose one over the other, as long as I'm choosing them in light of my last end, which is heaven. So that's the Catholic notion of liberty. Liberties were free for something, we're free to get to heaven. Whereas for the for the liberal of the of the Enlightenment, it's freedom from constraint. Nobody has the right to tell me what to think or what to do. That's the you know, really the essence of, of the modern liberalism is is man wants to be like unto God. Right. Who is right. like unto God. I will right. not let somebody else determine what I have to do in order to be saved. And that's not really liberty, that's not really freedom. Because once, once you are, or vice. yeah, because once you're caught in in lies, that's that's really, or not lies, but well, I mean, uh, yeah, a lie wow. because you're not uh, you're not ascribing to reality. You're not you're not subscribing to reality. 
Uh, and so once you're caught in that trap, that's that's really when you lose all your freedom. Exactly. We see it today with liberals, even in the political sphere. Once you are separated from truth and reality, you really become just a, a clog in the, sh- in the machine. You really become vulnerable and, and a victim. And you see that in the Frankfurt School, for example, founded in, in Germany and then moved to Manhattan. Is One of their goals was to to separate people from their families so that in time of crisis, they, they lean on the state. Mm-hmm. So the same idea is once you're outside of reality, you no longer are, are in the truth. You're liable to be really exploited and, and destroyed by, by error and lies, which, which is what happens to so many people today. The truth right, alone right. sets us free. This false liberty enslaves us. It enslaves us to the state, to our passions, to whoever has the, you know, the biggest stick at the time, so to speak. Right. And the, then, then we move on to the, the second mark of, of liberalism. Uh, and there's always this evolution. There's always this movement towards something new and different. And, and now that we've gone through some of this, it starts to make sense. Because if, if there's no standard anymore, if there's no original idea that is true and real, then you, you, can't, you can't stay static as a liberal. You have to keep moving forward and experimenting and changing. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, kind of the first point was the mind can't even know the truth. You know, the next tier really is that being is always evolving, you know, with Darwinism, for example. And, you know, things are constantly evolving. So there is no set moral code. You know, things don't have stable natures. And therefore, there is no stable set of morality. And therefore, the principle of the liberal is that we're just the only really dogmatic principle, morally speaking, is constant progress. You know, there's no set code of morality. We're just constantly progressing thanks to a certain evolution. And so evolution is really a landmark of the liberals by which there is no set fixed order established by a transcendent God. There are just all these beings constantly in flux. And if being is in flux, then the natural law is in flux, then the morality is in flux. And therefore we go back to Blondell. Truth is the conformity of my mind to life. You know, now divorce is necessary. Now all these other sins are necessary. So truth is just conforming my mind to the reality that this is where people are. And we see that and very much at the Second Vatican Council. And Pope Benedict himself very much adhered to that notion. And, and we see that, again, referencing the, the first episode in this, in this series, uh, Father McFarlane talking about Amoris Laetitia and, and how uh, Pope Francis essentially, and, and I believe it was in one of the footnotes, um, saying, well, we cannot expect... The Eucharist to be only a you know something to be treasured. Uh, I, f- I forget the exact quote, Father, but basically saying the Eucharist is not a prize for someone who is perfect. It's it's a salve. It's something to be given to someone who's um, who's sinning. And you know it's just too impossible to live without sin. He's essentially saying it's it's we can't expect man to to live by these codes anymore. It's just too hard. This is again this this slow insidious movement towards exactly. subjectivism. And they always really. play with you know kind of the reality, because the reality is, yes, the whole Eucharist is given as a remedy for our daily falls, but it can't be given to us when we're in the state of habitual sin. So they take what Pius X and Trent said is it's meant to be this daily remedy for our venial and habitual falls, which are venial. And they say, well, nobody can live in the state of grace, so give it to anybody, or especially right. regards to the remarried. But yeah. Right. And then once we are liberated, once our will is liberated from, from reason, then there really is nothing left for us to see as, as a hallmark of what is good anymore, right? And that's really starts with Luther is if there's no authority to tell us what is to be believed and, 
and not just a tyrannical authority, but an authority from Christ, the church, to tell us what what the Ten Commandments you know mean and what is what are the laws of the church and what's expected of us to get to heaven. If there's no more authority to, to tell us what we have to do to get to heaven, then there's going to be no standard. And so our morality is going to constantly change based off the current social acceptability of whatever you know sins are most popular at the time. And it's really that is our, our conscience is now liberated from the law. It right. used to be that a well-informed conscience was a conscience which studied human nature, studied the law, and said, okay, this is what I have to do here and now to please God. But now there is no authority to tell us what is the standard of morality. And therefore, morality constantly evolves. In the mind of a liberal, morality constantly evolves. And we see it even in political decisions in the last you know, 50 years in our courts, how it was something which seemed impossible 60 years ago is now just the norm today. Because while well, people have evolved, their consciences have evolved, there's no objective standard to which we're tied. And therefore, we continually unfold, so to speak. Right. Right. And even and even our own actions, our own body, that has now become rested, uh, pulled exactly. away from, from our soul as well. Yeah, it used to be to that, of course, we're, we're, you know, this hylomorphic system. We have the body and soul, and the soul is rational, and the soul is meant to command the body. And now, even there, you know, our body is liberated from any notion of, of accountability. Whatever the lower passions are inclined to do, we, we feel like we have to do, because we're liberated from any from any objective moral order. And then towards the end, where does, where does this independence end? I mean, I guess it really doesn't, but in, in your mind, Father, where do you see the final end of, of this independence being? Well, it's the, really the absolute destruction of man. I mean, man by nature is dependent. So a creature is one who depends upon a creator. You know, this notion of creation, so creation was not just an act which happened so many years ago. Creation is a continual action by which God holds us in being, and therefore man is constantly dependent, his intellect, his will, his whole being upon God. So once you try to separate that link between man and God, it'll lead to the absolute destruction of man. And whether it be in philosophy, where you end up holding two and two is four and two and two is five at the same time, which is what the liberals do, mm-hmm. right? Ever since Luther, you know, your creed is as good as my creed and no creed is as good as any creed. That's the notion. So that's holding in contradiction. And for Aristotle and St. Thomas, these contradictions are the greatest sins against the, the mind. Uh, two and two cannot be four and five at the same time. And so it leads to a complete destruction of the intellect and also a complete destruction of morality is you can do whatever you want as long as it's consensual and as long as you don't hurt somebody else, which unfortunately is very much the moral code of the Western world today is mm-hmm. as long as it's consensual and nobody's hurt, it's perfectly acceptable. Right. And But to do that, they have to liberate themselves very much from the past, from history. You know, as the Marxists do, is they constantly recreate history to fit the narrative. So the liberal has to find an explanation for why things were the way they were in the past to show that there's no contradiction between two and two is four and two and two is five or whatever contradiction you want to, to use. But why marriage right. used to be between a man and woman and now it's not. They have to constantly recreate history to show how these things are justifiable. And when you when you started that that point, Father, and you said, you know, man is a creature and he's dependent on the Creator, I the way you I thought you were going to go was man is a creature and he's dependent on other creatures because you know we're, well. we're, we're we're social animals, and so that as well. we we need each other. We we live in a society, mm-hmm. uh, and and another kind of tenet 
of this liberalism is complete independence from anyone else's thoughts and ideas and and so forth. So it's not only independence from a creator, but it's independence from these other people as well. In fact, we liberate ourselves from the creator by liberating ourselves from the laws of the church, from liberating the church and the state, separating the church and state, separating ourselves from our family, husbands and wives now are liberated from one another. So it's really a complete dismemberment of society because God created us as social so, in fact, we depend on God through other creatures. Right, right. So, a, a tr- a, to be truly human, we need to depend on God through other creatures, which is why we have the church, the priesthood, fathers of families, mothers, families. All these are means by which we show our dependence upon God. For example, we see in the Ephesians chapter 3, I, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, after whom all fatherhood on heaven and earth is called. So God has created man and to be an image and interface between his fatherhood and souls. That's why you see today the fatherhood is totally attacked because the devil knows that the father figure is meant to be this link by which souls are linked to God. They're united to God. And by destroying these links, we destroy man's dependence on God and man is liberated to his own destruction. Yeah. So we, we've been talking for the last... 45 minutes or so about liberalism and, and liberals um, and and as you started by by bringing this all up you said you know the archbishop himself was steeped in this we certainly in, in 2020 are steeped in this uh, how do we defend against that how do we keep that that liberalism from creeping into ourselves any more than it already has well we we very much are what we eat so to speak we we are what we drink we are what we read so if you want to know what somebody is, look at what they read and what they do. And, and liberalism comes to us really from all avenues today. We have the media, we have social media, we have magazines, we have newspapers, we have our friends. It's constantly coming to us. But the same is very much true if you want to make an analogy with health. You know, our, our, our system is constantly accosted or attacked by viruses or different things which could make us sick. And what's the best way to make sure we don't get sick is to have a very strong immune system, proper food, proper sleep, proper nutrition. So it's very much true today is we're very aware. I mean, if if the archbishop was infected by liberalism, if Pius X spoke about how this liberalism was destroying the church, we're very much influenced. So really the answer is the answer of the archbishop is to drink in the doctrine of the church. That is our immune system. To go back to the popes of the 19th and first half of the 20th century, read what they, they wrote on liberalism, read what they wrote on society, and having our mind filled with this truth will then give us this ability to live the Catholic life. Ideas have consequences. So mm-hmm. our ideas are constantly attacked by the media and by the, the world in which we live, and that's going to influence the way we behave. And we're going to constantly gradually slide into a liberal mode of behavior if we're constantly being affected by the tenets of the, of the media, the social media, the world in which we live. So we counter that by finding time every day to read the magisterium of the church. And the archbishop, he said, when he finally understood what the church taught, he said he was mobilized. He had this great desire to bring this teaching to others. So if we don't have this great desire to live the Catholic life, if, if we don't want our countries to be Catholic, then something's wrong. So we need to go back to these papal documents, fill the mind with the truth, and then pray to have this will, this desire to work, to restore all things in Christ, which is the only solution to the current crisis. 
And you said you had a, a recommendation of, of a book or a series of books that, uh, that people can There's a collection of encyclicals, the, um, the 16 papal documents, the Popes Against Modern Errors. And that really goes through all the modern errors and the different popes exposing the truth of Christ, the truth of his church, and the darkness, the evil of errors. And it's an excellent collection to read, to meditate upon, so as to really be this, this, this immune system against the liberalism we constantly you know, breathe throughout the day. Fantastic. Well, some, some easy-to-follow tips on, on how to not be more liberal than we are, and, and thank you for the, for the background information and for explaining it all so, so clearly, Father. I appreciate it. And, and this is going to tie into what we're going to be talking about in our next episode, uh, which is uh, what? Liberal Catholicism. Is that right? Liberal Catholicism. We'll try to show the contradiction. To be a liberal Catholic is a contradiction. I think right. after hearing this and then speaking about what the faith is, we'll, we'll see how it's a contradiction, how it really destroys the Catholic faith. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Father, for Great. your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode four of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next Thursday, we'll continue with Father Reuter as we explore the encyclical Libertas and continue our discussion on liberalism. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis, and we'll do our best to have it answered during the appropriate episode. And we could definitely use your support. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of $5, 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.